to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we are in our study through the book of Colossians, and we just finished the Christ hymn last week, which means we are coming up to verse 21 today, verse 21. So verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, those are the three verses that we'll be looking at. Um, If you would, stand with me, and can you turn up the house lights just a little bit brighter? I'm sorry. Um, If you would, stand with me, and we're going to uh, read these three verses that we'll be looking at this morning, 21 through 23. I'll read it, and I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. Starting in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would fill me with the spirit now, Lord, that I would be able to speak clearly, communicate clearly, teach your word clearly, that you would be the teacher in the room, not me, but you would be the teacher in the room, Holy Spirit, Um, that you would teach me this morning and all of us. uh, Help us see and understand your word as clearly as possible. Um, And Lord, where there's conviction, I pray that you would do it. Where there's comfort, I pray that you would do it. And where there's equipping God, I pray that you would do it. Um, As always, We're in a constant state of dependence upon you, as we are this morning, to be able to um, hear from you. So would you come now? We love you. We praise you. All this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, just as a reminder, we looked at the Christ hymn the last two weeks. That's chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And the Christ hymn kind of has two sections The first section was verse 15, 16, and 17, where on a very high level, um, Paul is helping the Colossian church understand the greatness of who Christ is and what he's done in all of creation. In verse 18, he takes a turn and he zooms in on what the, the work of Christ and what he's done in the new creation, the church. And he talks about what, um, how glorious Christ is in all of the new creation. At the very, very end, um, Paul uh, brings it home, if you will. So he's been talking on big levels and mostly about who Christ is. But when you get to verse 20, you see where he starts talking about the work of reconciliation and what he's done for us. Hey, Tyreek, how you doing, buddy? My friend Tyreek's here. I just want to say, hey, good to see you, buddy. Um, he's on my soccer team. So anyway, verse 20, uh, actually, not my soccer team. I'm not 10 so, or 7. So anyway, back to the, back to the uh, verse 20. And through him to reconcile. So we're looking at verse 20. It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So you can see as they finish the Christ, as Paul finished, at verse 20 of reconciliation, you have this uh, mention of reconciliation. Okay, And that verse 20 of reconciliation is what brings us into the teaching that we're looking at today, 21, 22, 23. We're looking at the work of reconciliation. Reconciliation is just the concept where two people are estranged from each other. 
They, they need to be brought back together. There needs to be peace between the two of them, but there's not peace between the two of them. There's enmity. There's strife. There's, there's something wrong. There could have been, there could have been a, a bringing together in the very beginning where things were fine, or there could have just been there's never been anything fine, but reconciliation needs to happen. Um, and so that's what we're looking at here is the idea of reconciliation. And so when you, we're going into verse 21, um, Paul's been talking about this cosmic scale of creation and all, and all things, but he's zoomed us down into verse 20 to talk about reconciliation. And so when we get to verse 21, 22, 23, he's going to talk about reconciliation. You can see reconciliation accomplished and applied. It's happened, and here's how it's happened. Here's how it's been applied to us. And so all things were created through him and for him in verse 16 and Since that's the case, he's going to now reconcile all things to himself. Specifically, we can see, as it says in verse 20, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So reconciliation happened because of Jesus' cross. You have God, you have us, and there needs to be a bringing together of us and God. And we are totally incapable of causing this reconciliation. Only God can cause it. God could just leave us unreconciled and do nothing, but instead he sent forth his son to die on the cross for us, and now reconciliation between us and God can happen because, and solely because of, God taking the first initiative. And that's where we're looking at in verse 21 here, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. These three simple verses are literally our three points today. Verse 21 is first point one, verse 22 will be point two, verse 23 will be point uh, B.3. You'll see how it's working. But basically, the big idea is reconciliation and what's happened in reconciliation. Now, um, start with an, il- an illustration here. Whenever I was in high school and even in college, um, I had a specific goal. Now, children, uh, don't do this. Don't do this. Okay? This is not a positive illustration. But nevertheless, this is what I did. Uh, whenever I was in high school, my goal in high school and college, and maybe even middle school, was to maximize the amount of sleep that I could get in every single class uh, that I was in. All I wanted to do is figure out how to sleep. So uh, I was very strategic about the number of hours I could get asleep per day. Um, I, I would, my wardrobe, if I could wear my hat in class, I could pull down the thing over my eyes and they wouldn't see that I was sleeping, to where I sat, sit as far back as possible so the teacher doesn't see you, to getting my work done as fast as possible for just pass little handouts so that I could start sleeping, um, get others to take notes for me that I trusted so they could just, I could sleep right away and I could have the full hour. It, on and on and on. Um, any amount of sleep you get at any point in class or even today in, in, in service won't impress me. I mean, I was, I was very strategic in, in everything I could do. Here's, here's an example. One time I took an SAT verbal class because apparently uh, words was hard for me in, 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 in high school. And so I took this SAT verbal class, which did not help. Uh, and I'm totally embarrassed by my, my oldest who's already taken the SAT and she destroyed my cl- I took it in high school and, you know, I'm getting way off track. My point is, I needed to take SAT verbal. I fall asleep in class, which I, I was fine to do. Um, and so I slept so hard when I woke up. Like, the people around me, I knew who they were, right? I fell asleep so hard, I woke up, and there was brand new people around me. And I'm like, this isn't my, this isn't my SAT verbal class. Who are these people? I don't even know who these people are. I slept so much. I, when I woke up, I looked like I, I belonged. I looked like an active student. I looked like I was supposed to be there. But as I started looking around, I wasn't supposed to be there at all. I was actually 
not an active student of this class, totally knew that I was asleep and whenever I didn't belong whatsoever. I was an absolute faker. Now, my teacher knew that I was asleep and whenever I fell asleep, uh, she told the class to just get up really super quiet. And, and she stood at the door and told the next class to come in really super quiet. And so I woke up 15, 20 minutes into my class, and she's like, that's what you get for sleeping. I got everybody to w- walk in and out. And so my point is, like, I, I, I looked like I was belong, but because of my faking and my sleeping or whatever, it came back and it got me, right? It came back and it got me. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Um, you can look like you are an active Christian. You can look like... You're walking with Christ, but you can absolutely be faking it. You can absolutely be faking it. Um, I'm going to reference Matthew 7. A few beckons us, especially when we get to verse 23, to make sure we understand the clear teachings of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. Verse uh, 13 and 14 in Matthew 7 say, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it uh, are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So in this one little teaching, he's showing us there's two gates. All right. There's the narrow way and it's difficult. But those that enter through this narrow gate, they find life. They go to heaven. But then the rest of the world, there's this big wide gate that most people are walking through. And as they're going through this, they they might, any number of, of scenarios, they might think they're a Christian, but they're not. Or they know that they're not and they don't care. But they're walking through this wide gate which leads to destruction ultimately. It ultimately in our lifetime will lead us to to hell. And he says, don't do the wide gate. Do the narrow gate. Don't do the wide gate. The point of this text, verse 21, 22, 23. The design of this text is to weed out, pun intended, four soils. To weed out those who are true believers and not. If you don't know the four soils, um, basically Jesus tells a parable and he says there's four soils. One is the path and people walked on it and the birds came and ate it. The next is the rocky soil and the water couldn't get into it and the, it couldn't grow. The next is the, the weeds where it comes up and it chokes them out and they couldn't grow. The fourth one is the good soil and it grew hundredfold. The other three, they think that they're Christians, but they're ultimately not. The path, the, can't, they can't grow. There's, there's rocks. Water can't get to it. They can't grow. There's, there's weeds that come and they choke it. They can't grow. They look in some manner like they're Christian, but eventually that plant dies. It's not good. But there's this other soil, and of course the soil are our hearts. Which one is our heart? Is it hard? Is it rocky? Is it weedy? Or is it actually good soil? The point of this text is, and the design of this text is to weed out, pun intended, those who are really true believers in Christ and those who are not. True believers, those that have really been reconciled, have had this, as we're going to look at in verse 22 and 23, declared of them. And they should be walking in a particular way. The design of this text, as I said, is to weed out those who are really true believers and those who are not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 22, 23. So we're referencing back to that same teaching. This is what Jesus says. There's a day where people will come up to him in heaven. And they'll think that they're believers. We're talking about the, the wide gate people. Not the woes that knew that they weren't, but those who thought they were Christians on the wide gate people. Not the narrow, but the wide. They're going to one day look at Jesus and they're going to say, Oh, Jesus, I'm supposed to come to heaven with you. This is what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that is literally curios, curios. Someone I have literally calling Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's possible to say Jesus is your Lord, but not go to heaven. What? Keep reading with me. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, whenever they go before the Lord, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then they're even going to say church work. I did church work. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast demons out in your name, do mighty works in your name? And I will look at them and I will declare them, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. They thought they were entering through the narrow gate, but they were actually going through the wide gate. Matthew chapter 7, right before that, in verse 15 through 20, he explains why that happens. In verse 15 through 20, by talking about trees. Talking about trees and fruit. Um, when, you say, when he says, those who did what the, the will of my father is, he's going to explain what the will of my father is in verse 15 through 20. Now, Let's be really careful. We're going to talk about this in a second. There's no such thing as doing enough work to go to heaven. Other religion. Faith in Christ and what he's done for me and I'm going to heaven. And that's my only hope. But we can't neglect the verses of the Bible that help us understand we have to persevere. We're getting to that. I don't want to get too far ahead. Verse 15, Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There are people that look like they're Christians but they're not. Basically, you will recognize them by their fruits. What they do in life, the way they live, shows whether ultimately they are in Christ or not. And that's not easy to discern. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes they look like Christians for years. Ultimately, it says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No, they're not. They're gathered from grape vines, right? Or figs from thistles. No, figs come from fig trees. Whatever kind of tree it is, it bears that kind of fruit. Christians bear Christian-looking fruit. Non-Christians bear non-Christian fruit. It's just that simple. There's never the reverse. It's never mix and match or whatever. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. That means every healthy Christian will bear Christ-like fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. It's a a metaphor, right? But Christians don't look like non-Christians long term. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Ultimately, non-Christians will not live for the glory of Christ. Every tree that does not, and here's the the ultimate end, right? Going back to the the narrow and and wide gate. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, every non-believer, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every non-believer ultimately goes to hell. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The way they live their life is evident. And that's, that's, that's verse 20. And in verse 21 is where he says, only the one who does the will of my Father will go to heaven. So, we can't miss out on key texts that help us understand. Absolutely, it's about Christ. 100%. Your only hope is what Christ has done for you. But there's always going to be verses that talk about perseverance, which is, I just can't shy away from verse 23 today, right? But we have, to, we have to make sure we understand. So let's talk about the gospel. I've said it several times. Christ is the only way. What does that mean? Well, let's go to maybe one of the, the clearest. There's tons, but I, this is just maybe it's my favorite. Clearest texts that talk about the gospel, okay? So what is the gospel? Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Just as a side note, Paul's telling Christians the gospel. 
We should tell unbelievers the gospel. You should tell believers the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Every Christian needs to hear the gospel continuously. It's your only hope today, and it's your only hope tomorrow. It's our only hope forever, and we need to keep hearing it. We don't come to it. Check that box, 101 Christianity. I got that down. What's new? What's new is go back to 101 and (laughs) go back to the gospel continually. That's our only hope. Anyway, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We're all coming back to that. And here it is. Four. So he's going to tell us what the gospel is. What is this good news? Gospel just means good news. What is it? What is it? I deliver to you as a first importance what also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the good news. You and I are sinners. Christ died for that. We don't have to. He took our place. The great exchange happened. And he was buried. So he really did die. He didn't swoon. He didn't look dead. He didn't appear dead. And that he was raised. And Satan, sin, and death couldn't defeat him ultimately. He had the final say. He came back from the dead, never to die again. So we can hope for sure that we, when we die physically, we'll, we'll ultimately live. In accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. There it is. That's the gospel. That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised. Now, don't miss this, right? He preached that message to them. But look at verse 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of that truth that I just preached to you, um, which you received and in which you stand, and by which, notice the verb tenses, you are being saved. You are being saved. You believe in that and you hold true to that or you continually believe in that until, you're, until you die. You are being saved. And then he even says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you, pre- you believed in vain. So there's a way to believe. This is just a Greek word, pistos. There's a way to faith. There's a way to believe and not really it be true. You could believe in vain is what he's pointing us to, right? And so... The way that you don't believe in vain is is to hold fast, as he says, to the good news. Hold fast to the message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. And so that's the message. And so I know what you might be thinking now. But you've said that a thousand times. Since the church opened, you've never stopped saying that. Exactly. Right? And so I know that. So why are you saying that? Because the Bible's telling us that today. That's why I'm saying it. Um, And so there's still a way, though, to think all of that. Is true. To say, I mentally assent to every single thing you've just said, but still not be a believer. There's still a way for that to be possible. And that's what I want to talk about. The design of the text today is to weed out, pun intended, for source, those who are true believers in Christ and those who are not. So that in the end, we say, He died for us, He died for our sins. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to. Um, Receive eternal conscious torment, punishment forever. I want to hold fast. I want to hold firm. And I want to be with him forever. So as I said, um, verse, verse 21 is the bad news today. Verse 22 should blow your socks off with encouragement. And verse 23 is where the challenge comes. All right. Verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1. This is... The uh, reconciliation accomplished and applied. Point number one. You can go ahead and put it up. Gravity 
of previous condition without Christ. This is the bad news. When we hear these things, this is who we were before Christ. Verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, comma, we're going to stop there. All right. So this is the gravity of the previous condition um, without reconciliation. This is who we were before we became believers. And this is who every single believer, non-believer is right now. And Paul, in verse 21 and you. Now, let's, let's not miss the and you. It's important. Remember, 15 through 20, it's been Jesus. Jesus large scale. All about Jesus. Everything I want to talk about is about Jesus. And all of a sudden, he just brings it all the way down to the Colossian church right there in the first century to the tiny little podunk, small little redneck church in the middle of nowhere Colossae and says, you. He just brought it all the way down to them. Written, and this and you is written in the, with a, with a, in the Greek with a special emphasis. And he's been, as I said, wanting to talk about Christ on large scales. And he's wanting to bring it right down there to one church, one faith family, and help them feel the glorious weight of reconciliation. And he's doing the same thing in this, in this church this morning. And you. For the Colossians, now for us. And you. And then he says... These three specific descriptions of our previous condition. And he says, and you who once were, who once were. See Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 if you want alienated. Remember I said reconciliation had to happen. That's because we were alienated. God was here. We were here. We had no way to get here. The only way for us to get here is for God to come over to us and bring us back. That's it. Without that, we're in trouble. That's because we were alienated. Apolatrio. We were alienated. This is our relational condition. Every single one of these is going to describe our relation, a condition of ours. Our relational condition, our attitudinal condition, our volitional condition. This is our relational condition. Namely, that we're alienated. We are separated. We are not in relationship with God before Christ. We don't know him. Translation is like estranged or cut off. Um, J. Mac says, non-Christians are detached from God, John MacArthur. They are detached from God because of sin, because there's no such thing as an innocent heathen. There's no such thing. Everybody who's not in Christ is a heathen or whatever you want to say. And so the Colossians were at one point continuously and persistently, that's the, that's the way that they're wanting us to feel, is this continual nature. You once were continually and persistently alienated from God. That's who you were, totally alienated. Now, uh, the first condition uh, is going to, one, one writer says, the second and third in this particular text, the uh, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, the second and third define more precisely the first, meaning you're alienated because you're hostile in mind and you're doing evil deeds. So if the first one is our relational condition, alienated, the second one is our attitudinal condition. This was our attitude. This is, this is how we carried ourselves before Christ. We were hostile in mind. Ekthros. This is, Calvin says, also including our intentions. We were hostile in mind. The way we lived, the way we thought, the way that we acted continually before Christ is we were angry towards God. We hated God. Now you'd say, that's not true of me. I didn't hate God. I was fine with God. I just wasn't, you know, cool with God. It seems like I wasn't a Christian, but I was fine with him. I was fine that he existed. 
That's not the case. If we don't want to live for Christ's glory as believers, we're angry. We're hostile. This is how the Bible describes us. Romans 1, this is a little bit lengthy, but Romans 1 is just captures our hostility as unbelievers towards God. Starting in verse 21, for although they knew God, this is unbelievers, even though they knew God, meaning they knew God existed, this is all of us before Christ, even though we knew God existed, we didn't honor God. We didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkening. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. In other words, instead of wanting to live lives that glorified God, we just wanted to live lives that glorified anything that was created. Us, stuff, whatever. Um, such as birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God said, if you don't want to give me glory, I'm going to give you over to what you want. Here, here's what you want. And this is what he says. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, creech, the creature, anything created, rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them. You, you want to be hostile? Then, then go full. Everything you want then. Here it is. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed for passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men, receiving them themselves due to penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, this is what it means to be hostile to God. To just do whatever you want at any point. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a debased mind to do what not to be done. They were filled with, hostile to God means they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That feels like it doesn't belong in this huge bad list. Children, it does. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's de righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They know I've done everything that God hates and I deserve to die, but I don't care. That's what he's about to say. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who do those practices deserve to die, not only do they give approval, or not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not only am I going to do it anyway, but I'm going to tell everybody else they should dishonor God with their lives and their bodies and their minds and their hearts and their souls. That's what it means to be hostile to God. That's what it means. So that was our attitudinal condition. We talked about our relational condition. We were alienated. We talked about our attitudinal condition. We were hostile in mind. And thirdly, doing evil deeds. This is our volitional condition. Volitional just means what you do, right? Our volitional condition means we continually do evil deeds. So we need to be saved big time. Not primarily from this third one, doing evil deeds. Just think of that as lowercase s, sin. That's bad. We need to be forgiven for that. But what we need to be saved from is the capital S, sin, from the second one, where we're hostile in mind. Because we are the old creation or the old man, and we need to be the new creation. Because we're the old man, we do evil deeds. We need to be forgiven of that, but we need a new heart that makes us not do that. And so we need to have our heart changed so that we're not hostile in mind anymore. But instead, we become lovers and worshipers of God. So the capital S, sin, is cast away, and the heart change happens. And now we're a new creation. And now we don't do the lowercase sins anymore. Instead, we live lives of worship.
That's our condition. Now, that was really bad. That was depressing, Fudd. Could you get to something happy? That's just verse 1. It's beginning, right? We're through that. Whew, shake it off. All right, it's over. That was the bad news. We need forgiveness. We need a heart change. We need to not be hostile in mind. We need to not be alienated. We need to stop doing evil deeds. Praise the Lord for Jesus because we couldn't do anything about it. We were stuck there with no hope. As a matter of fact, we didn't even want to make a change. We didn't even realize how much we needed it. And then it says this. So we've achieved alienation. We have achieved alienation because of being hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's the gravity. And we looked at the three conditions. Verse 22. He has now reconciled. This is where we get to. This, number, verse 22 should just fill you with so much encouragement and hope right now. Because this is, I mean, just as bad as it gets to just unbelievably good news. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I can remember one day um, I was talking to a guy. This is in college. His name was Andy. He's a pastor out in California now. I can remember one day, Andy, I was married. I had just graduated. I was working at Charleston Southern University in the enrollment office. And he was a student. Uh, I helped bring him in from Michigan. And uh, he was just feeling, he was a ministry major. He was feeling really bad one day. And so he came up to the office and he just wanted, like, dude, I'm feeling terrible. I've been, I feel like I haven't been with the Lord lately. I've been, you know, not walking with the Lord and I'm just feeling super depressed. And me and my friend Jughead, yes, his nickname's Jughead, we were actually memorizing Colossians chapter 1 at the time. And so I, we had gotten up, up until this point. And so uh, I remembered verse 22. And I was like, hold on, Andy, I want to tell you something. Because he was just feeling like really bad about his life and the way he's walking with the Lord. And like God's mad at him. And I was like, no, 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 let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you. And I pull out my Bible and I start reading verse 22 to him. And I said, Andy, I want you to hear this. This is important for you. God has reconciled you in his body of flesh in order. And I'm looking at my Bible and I'm reading in order now to present you. He's presenting you right now before the God, the Father. Jesus is literally presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And I look up in my office at Charleston Southern and this 18-year-old is just bawling in front of me, crying. I would love him this much. And he realizes what Christ has done for him. That's what this verse should do for you this morning. Look, look at this. He has, because of his body and flesh, done these three things. This is three specific descriptions. That was of our previous condition, of our current condition, who, who are in Christ. You can just see him right there. But first, let's make sure we talk about this um, First little part, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Notice something with me, all right? Let's just take out the word of flesh. Take out those two words. He is now reconciled in his body, um, he is now reconciled in his body by his death. The of flesh doesn't have to be there. The way Paul writes, uh, if that wasn't there, we would still get the whole point he's making, right? He's reconciled us because of by his body dying on the cross. But he puts the of flesh, the sarks. This little phrase is important because Paul is, again, and I want to make sure I'm pointing this over and over and over, specifically pointing out the Colossian heresy by making them understand Jesus had a physical body. He wasn't just some crazy off deity, but he, because remember, they thought all material's bad, and so Jesus couldn't be made of 
of flesh. And he says, his body of flesh. He was human. He was real man. Because in order for man to be saved, God had to become that which he wanted to save. It's just a theological truth. If he wanted to save donkeys, then he would have come as a donkey. But he didn't come as a donkey, right? He came as a man to save man. So that's important. And so he's pointing out that he was flesh because he wanted to help us understand that Jesus had a physical body and that he suffered in it. And now we also want to stand, understand this reconciliation in his body by his death. And you can also look at verse 20 when he talks about reconciliation by the blood of Christ. John MacArthur expounds on this, and it's just super helpful. He says, proper biblical teaching on the blood of Christ simply is that his physical blood that he shed does not have magical or mystical saving power. It's not some supernaturally preserved form of the actual blood of Christ that literally washes believers of of their sin. The blood of Christ is applied to the believer in a symbolic sense by faith. By faith. In the same way that we see Christ by faith and that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Not in a physical sense yet. We're not there. And he goes on and says this. It is not just his blood though that saves us. Instead, it's his death. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh. There it is. By his death. Jesus bleeding didn't save us. Jesus dying saved us. By his death, uh, MacArthur says, it's not his blood, but his death that saves us. And when scripture talks about the shedding of blood, the point is not just bleeding, but dying by violence as a sacrifice. Christ died not only as a sacrifice, but as our sacrifice, our substitute. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. In Romans 8, 3, Paul tells us that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. He took the place of sinners dying as a substitutionary death that paid the full penalty of sin for those who believe. This death satisfied God's wrath. God had wrath towards us, righteous wrath. He was angry because, at us because we were sinners, and it was supposed to be poured out on us. Instead of us getting the anger, once again, Paul hammers away at the false teaching of the Colossian heritage that Christ died for men. Were that not true, there could be no reconciliation for any purpose. This is why the reconciliation happened. He died by his body of flesh, by his death, and then here it is. In order, in order, Christ's death, in order. Now, there's lots of things we could say for his own glory, for the, for the glory of God the Father. But when it, when it relates to us, what are the three specific descriptions in this text of our current condition? Please, Lord Jesus, let us feel right now the weight and the wonder of these three things. Feel, try, try your hardest to feel the weight and wonder of these three things. Number one, in order to present you holy. Hagios, holy. He wants to present you holy. This is literally setting apart, setting away from sin, and setting to God. That's what's true of you. In Christ, you are literally now set apart from sin, not just in neutral zone, and set to God. We are set apart. God the, fe- God the Father now only sees us In the same way he sees his son. How does God the Father see his son? Perfect, holy, righteous, blameless. 
That's how he sees you. Never get over that. Never get over that. We are now holy. We are holy. We are justified. We are being made holy also. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering he has perfected. Notice these verbs. He has perfected. That's what's true of you now. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being set apart. He has perfected those who are being set apart. Which one is it? Yes, it's those. It's both of those. What's true of you is that you are holy. Christ wants to take you and present you as holy. And he will if you're in Christ. Number two, he also doesn't want to just present you holy. He also wants to present you blameless, amamos, without blemish, without blemish. I grew up having lots of blemishes, and I could not grow, I could not wait till I got older to where I did not have any blemishes, right? I wanted to just grow out of the, the teenage acne. I would not talk to people. I would never do this, right? But I would not talk to people because I didn't want them to look at me because I didn't want them to see blemishes on my face. So I would just never talk to people. You can just feel, feel the the weight of that awkwardness of 15 whenever you didn't want people to look at you, right? And how bad you felt about blemish. That blemish is nothing compared to the sinful blemishes that we had. And he's saying those deep sinful blemishes, gone. You're without that. That's gone. No reason to feel any shame whatsoever anymore. You are literally without blemish. Nothing wrong. This is where it gets pretty awesome. Because this, with this blemish word in the Old Testament always referred to the animals that were sacrificed. And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this blemish word talks about Jesus as the spotless lamb without blemish. So it's usually talked about the sacrifices and how they need to be without blemish. But Paul here actually takes this language of blemish, not about animals, not even about Jesus, and employs it about us. You're without blemish now because of Christ. <laughs> Whoa. Right? That's amazing. Holy, blameless, and this is where it gets even cooler. And above reproach before him. He goes farther than just blameless. Just a declaration. He actually says above reproach. Literally, no one, if they wanted to, could bring a charge against you about how dirty or unholy or terrible you are. No charge is going to stick. And you'd be like, wait a second, Fudd. I know a lot of charges that could stick. Well, yeah, they could to the former you, but all that's washed away. That anger is no longer towards you. Now, all you get is holiness, righteousness, nothing counted against you in your favor. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Above reproach. What's true of you? is that if someone wanted to come and say anything about your condition before the Lord, nothing could stick, ever. If that's not one of the most encouraging things of the morning, I wish that we were a little bit more lively because that's something that somebody should say amen about, but all right. Amen. No one is able to make one accusation. Now here's where it gets even better, right? He just says all these things about us and then he puts this tiny little two-word phrase. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Well, that's where it's pretty awesome. Don't miss those two little words. God sees us, hear this, this is, God sees us right now as we will be in heaven one day. 
That's amazing. He sees us right now as we will be before him one day in heaven. That's how he sees us right now. When we're glorified, his view right now is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what it's like right now. O'Brien says this. I'm going to use a big word. It's called parousia. It just means the day when Jesus comes back, depending on your eschatology, but mine's the right one. <laughs> it's, whenever, it's whenever Jesus comes back and we're finally with him. That's, that appearing is called the parousia. It's just the Greek word of parousia. It's the appearing of Christ, whatever it is. And so he, this is what he says. God's work of reconciliation in Christ, all that he's been talking about, um, had, has the goal of the fitness and the preparedness of us for his people, for his parousia. Like, he wants us to be absolutely fit and prepared. He wants us to look just like him when he appears. And every bit of the reconciliation work he's done is so that will happen. And it's going to because he's God. He's not going to mess up. He's not going to fail. He's not going to get it 98%. 100% all the way. Everything that he's done is for that. Now, if I stopped here, we would all be like, click the pen and let's just have some worship. But then we have this verse 23 that we have to deal with. This is, verse 23 is why I read everything I read in Matthew 7. Look what it says. If indeed. Now, you should know that in Greek, if has lots of different meanings. In, in English, we just have if, right? In the Greek, there's if, and it has some, some this one's, um, oh, I can't remember, it was ud. Uh, I think is what it was. But here's the point. Like there's if and I don't think it's going to happen. And there's if and I'm totally in neutral. I have no clue. And, this, and there's the if. I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. This if is the if and I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Which is super encouraging, right? Absolutely. That's good news. And this is if indeed. All right, so number two is the glorious work of Christ and reconciliation. Number three in verse 23 then is the genuine perseverance necessary because of reconciliation. And if you noticed, they were all three starting with G. That was, anyway. Um, verse 23. Um, if indeed, if indeed. What's the deal with if indeed? Here's the thing. There are people that think they're saved. Um, they think that they're Christians, they believe in Christ, they said they've trusted Christ, and they should be no, there should be no surprises, especially in the South, because Christianity can be packaged up and delivered uh, in some, some churches as, you know, walk the aisle, pray this prayer, and you are in. That's it. It's all that's necessary. And like, that sounds great to me. It's Easter and Christmas, and I thought I was going to get saved today. You know, it was one of those kind of things, right? And, uh, and so they, they profess Christ, but they never say stuff like this. Philippians 3.8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Those walk the aisle Christians that we're familiar with don't say things like Philippians 3.8. Because all they just, the only thing they care about is just not going to hell. Hell sounds terrible, no thanks. Heaven, how do I do it? Oh, Jesus. Well, then Jesus it is. You know, that, that's, about, that's about the extent they've thought about it. Um, and verse 23 is for them. Matthew chapter 7 is for them. I'm not saying that's any of you, and I'm praying the Lord that it isn't. But let's go through it so that we all feel the weight of 23. If indeed, if indeed you persevere. The glorious truths in point number two that we read, those three things, are all conditional 
upon remaining firmly founded and established in the faith. And it's definitely possible. Ironically, John 666, John chapter 6, verse 66, gives the story. That's very ironic of the story where Jesus gives hard teaching and there was tons of disciples that would follow him. And when they hear the hard teaching, they're like, ah, they leave. Don't, don't, want to, don't want to follow Jesus if it means that. That's in John chapter 6, verse 66. Perseverance, as John MacArthur says, perseverance is the hallmark of a true saint. If indeed you continue in the faith, you have to continue in the faith. What does that mean? What does continue in the faith mean, Fudd? Because I want that. What does that mean? Well, verse 23 is very kind to us because it tells us two specific descriptions of continuing the faith. It tells us specifically what perseverance looks like if you continue in the faith. So what, what, is, what does per- perseverance look like? Two specific descriptions. If indeed you, here it is, number one, continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. This is continue to hold fast. Continue to believe in Christ. And he gives us two little ways to understand continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Stable and steadfast. This should wake us up. This is help us understand. Calvin, even Calvin. Calvin says, Paul intimates or subtly hints that they're still just making progress in the faith, but they've not yet quite reached the goal. They still have to continue in the faith. You will persevere, but because you persevere, you shouldn't pat yourself on the back as the perseverance king or queen, right? You will persevere because of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, redemption, redemption. And so, this is maybe different from what you've heard. But how do we continue in the faith? It tells us, stable, steadfast. Stable and steadfast. Faith is actively trusting in Christ right now. It's not banking on the prayer you prayed when you were 8 or 15 or 27 as I know that I'm a Christian because I did that. It's banking on my present trust right now. Who do I trust right now? Christ. Why? Because he took my place. Am I a Christian? Well, am I presently trusting Christ? Yes, then I'm a Christian. Who am I presently trusting? That's what it is. And it, he gives us these two uh, ways to understand it. Trust is stable and steadfast. O'Brien says these two words of stable and steadfast are metaphors of strength and security. And he, they're supposed to be thought of and contentionally under, uh, uh, connected to what a house looks like. Stable and steadfast. Which brings me back over to Matthew chapter 27. There's a little text I haven't read. I've read some and I've read some more. But there's one little other text I want to read. Actually, towards the end. This is Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount on his teaching about a house. Build your house on the rock. Verse 24. Everyone then, after he just got saying, whoever says to me, Lord, Lord, I'll cast you out. I never knew you. And then he says, then everyone who then hears the words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. If you trust in Christ, life will kick the mess out of you, but if you stay trusted to Christ, then you will be with him. Because you said, as life knocks the crap out of me, I'm not allowed to say that, sorry. As life knocks the mess out of me, my kid, we don't have, we're not allowed to say that at the house. As, as life knocks the mess out of me, um, Christ is my only hope. That's, that's it. Because here's the deal. Life is going to knock the mess out of you. Doesn't matter who you are. Watch what he says here. Because 
He just said that it's going to do that to Christians. He also says, um, and everyone, or in this he says, unbelievers and believers both get, have this happen. The rain fell and the floods came and blew, but it didn't fall. And then everyone who hears these words of mine, um, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a floods come to both. Those who build their house on the rock and those who built their house on the sand. And it says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall. And so we have to stable and steadfast build everything that we have on Christ alone. So what does that mean then? Stay one direction and it never veers off. It never veers off. It goes straight and it doesn't go into the ditches. It doesn't make shipwreck of our faith as the scriptures would describe it. It stays straightforward towards Christ. If we fall to the side and we stay there and stay there and don't finish the process of sanctification, it's proof we were never justified. If we fall to the side but we come back, and what does that look like? Man, we can talk about that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion on that. I'm happy to have that. If you feel like you've come to Christ and you've been walking and you feel like you're in a ditch, we can talk about what that looks like. Please come talk to me afterwards. But that's what stable is. Steadfast is not just that you're not falling off, but steadfast is that you're literally always going forward. You could stay, not fall in a ditch, but you could just stay here (laughs) and never go forward. Steadfast is the faith that's still moving forward, not stagnant. It's going somewhere, namely towards Christ. Namely towards Christ. It doesn't just sit and never move forward. It finishes the process of sanctification. If you go to the ditch or you just stop, it's proof you were never justified. 1 John 2 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would, never, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were never of us. There are people that were with us, that looked like us. They stayed with us. They smelled like Christians. They act like Christians. They talked like Christians. And we thought they were Christians. But then they left. And then they said they're not going to be a Christians anymore. And we're like, why did they do that? Well, they went out so that it might become plain to us that they were never of us. That's what 1 John two nineteen says. They left to show us that they weren't going to stay stable and steadfast that they were never true believers. That's the teaching of 1 John 2.19. So the first way that we make sure that we persevere is we continue in the faith. We only trust Christ and him alone. The other way is right there in the text. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and here it is, not shifting also from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which, I have, which has been proclaimed in all the universe under heaven, and in which I, Paul, have become a minister. So if we're looking at this, the way you persevere is, one, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Number two is you don't constantly shift from the gospel that you heard. In other words, um, you don't change the gospel to something else. You don't decide, I think the gospel is something else now. Now, this, there's a word that can be supplied there for you, just so you can hear where it says, if indeed you continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope, um, that, that shifting, you can supply if you wanted to. It's in there in the Greek, not constantly shifting. The word constantly could just kind of be understood as supplied in there. In other words, uh, the gospel is this now. I'm going to change it again. The gospel is this over here now. Um, the way that you persevere is that you don't change the gospel to something else. You don't go to another gospel. You go to another gospel, you're not a Christian anymore. And I would say you never were. That's just my theology. But nevertheless, hold fast to the gospel. The gospel that you heard when you were saved. The gospel that Paul heard when he got saved. 
the gospel that's being proclaimed throughout the entire world, the gospel that's been proclaimed throughout the entire world over the last 2,000 years. That is the gospel. That's the only one that saved, as he says, of which I became a minister. The one that saved Paul is the one that saved us. There's not one that saved Paul, and since it's 2,000 years later, we're saved a different way. That's not how it works. Therefore, the call to steadfastness in the face of very real danger is to not be drawn away from the true gospel of Christ into another gospel. And there are tons of them, from prosperity to down the line. For our sins, Christ died. We already read it in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures. For our sins, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, according to the scriptures. The end, that's it. And we don't shift away from it. We don't fall away from it to show that we were never regenerate. Instead, we continue trusting in the gospel of Christ. He is our only hope. And there isn't a plan B. And there shouldn't be a plan B. Or plan A is worth nothing. And so, as we see here um, in this particular text, reconciliation accomplished and applied, there is the need for us to understand genuine perseverance is necessary. Now, I just, I'm going to close this way. I'm, I don't, I'm actually changing my, my conclusion. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, look at those three things in number two. Look at those three things in, in number two. Look at verse 22. This is what you are declared. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now look at the three and 21. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The calls to perseverance. Which one do you want to persevere in? Well, 21 sounds terrible. If I'm going to persevere, I want to hear that good news. I want to persevere in holy, blameless, and above reproach. I like the sound of that. God's called me homely. He said that I'm blameless. There's no blemishes in me at all. And before him, I'm above reproach. No accusation is going to stick. Well, that sounds like something I can persevere in. That sounds like something not only I can, I really want to. And so when you hear this number three, you need to persevere. Realize the contrast between these two of verse. 21 and 22, and when you read 22, everything in you says, well, yes to 22, no to 21. If I'm going to persevere, 22 sounds great. And remember this, the only way you and I will do it is because of Christ. Well, that means he gets all the glory and not me. So when we see this, reconciliation accomplished and applied, it's not like, but maybe not. (laughs) Don't hear that, right? Instead, Think of the great, glorious truths of verse 22. And know that perseverance is God's work in me and that you're going to do it no matter what because you've just never gotten over the fact that you are holy and blameless and above reproach. And if you need to, like I read it to Andy at Charleston Southern every single day and it makes you just ball cry in the middle of the day on a Tuesday afternoon, then go do it. So that you can have those great, glorious words read over you or proclaimed over you that in Christ you are holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a great text. And um, 
I thank you so much for these words. The condition before Christ is absolutely scary, but there could not be a greater contrast to the next verse, to know that we are now because of you holy, blameless, and above reproach. And all of it's because of Christ. I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you, they've never confessed their sin, they've never um, proclaimed you as their Lord and King, that you would save them right now. And that they would see the work of the cross or the death of Jesus on the cross as for them. And they would say yes to that and they would believe. And for those of us that are in Christ, Lord, um, equip us, give us the deep desire to want to continue to persevere because you are so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.